At Square Root, we never use concentrate. In fact, we rarely concentrate on anything apart from making the best fizzy drinks. So if you notice a few mistakes in this podcast, we apologize in advance. So hi, I'm Robin. I'm the founder of Square Root. And I'm Ed, also the founder of Square Root. We started Square Root in 2012 from our kitchen table with the simple aim of making great tasting fizzy pop from actual fruit. We didn't really know what we were doing when we started, but we took massive inspiration from craft beer and founded our Soda Works. And that's the technical name for a place where soda is made. Since then, we've learned a lot about the soft drinks industry. And the thing that shocked us is that most people don't actually make their products. The vast majority is made on contract, which is fine if that's what you're into. But we believe in the juicy bits, not fruit juice and concentrate. So we wanted to shine a light on people putting the work in and getting down and dirty making their products like we always have. And, and this is it, the Never From Concentrate podcast. In each episode, you'll hear from people with a hands-on approach to their business. We're talking bakers, roasters, movers, shakers, and maybe even some candlestick makers. We're interested in telling the stories of what it takes to get things made the hard way. We've got Phil, who is the founder of Land Chocolate, which is based in Hackney, East London. With 10 years' experience in being to bar, he's someone who knows his process and provenance inside out. I first met Phil when he was working at Brooklyn-based chocolatier Mass Brothers. We were connected by a mutual friend, chef and writer Craig Ballinger, after they'd been talking about the challenges of making a cold brew cacao drink. I turned up on my delivery bike with a keg of drinking chocolate and found Phil in the back assembling a machine that he built. He really knew his stuff, and while talking to him, I realised there was so much more to chocolate than I ever thought. A year later, Phil opened his own chocolate production space, and I was immediately intrigued by the product. How did you get into it? Yeah, chocolate was... It wasn't the plan, really. It never was the plan. My original plan was to work in the BBC for the whole of my life, working in radio, which was my kind of first passion. And then I kind of did that thing when you're mid-twenties where I was like, I've been travelling before, I'm going to go off and explore the world for a bit. And did that in Central America. And that's where I ended up kind of working at a cacao farm. I came back from that trip and thought, okay, well, I could go back to the safe job in the BBC or I could just start again and do a terrifying thing of starting a new kind of industry. And I did. And I kind of just started at the bottom, worked as a sales assistant in a chocolate shop, worked my way up, met some interesting people like you along the way. And then obviously did land. And somehow I'm still... Still here, making land chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, if I think about it too much, it kind of freaks me out a bit. I'm a bit like, it doesn't sound like something I would do, but it's somehow I'm here. What drove you to want to make your own chocolate while open the factory? Yeah, it was, it was one of those where... I mean, I've been in London already, obviously, for quite a few years. since I was Pretty much since I was 19, I've been in London. And then eventually kind of I was studying at university and obviously worked at BBC but I was in North West London at the time with a bunch of friends and then we all kind of made this kind of collective move over to kind of East London all working in different industries but we all kind of settled in East London and that's when I realised obviously there's there's quite the community of, of food and drinks and everyone is really interested in their craft of what they do and people like Craig Ballinger who was my housemate at the start I mean <laughs> anyone who's anyone who's met Craig knows that I mean, once he starts talking, he'll talk to anybody about everything and anything, nothing to do with food and drink. And um, he was one who encouraged me at the start when I was like, I first got into the chocolate kind of industry and I wanted to kind of make my own chocolate at home. 
I had to do lots of research and go on the internet and find all this DIY equipment, which I had to kind of find. It included hair dryers, it included all sorts of interesting bits and pieces. <laughs> and Craig, Craig was always there, kind of obviously in the house, because always helping me and pushing me and kind of, kind of feeding me and piling with me with booze at late night, at midnight, just kind of while I was roasting my cocoa beans. Craig's there, kind of have, having a drink with me and just telling me nonsense, and encouraging me. And that was kind of what, you, what I needed. That kind of that gave me a bit of a kind of a confidence to kind of go for it, really. And then, yeah, as time went on, I just, I just kind of realized I enjoyed the product, but I also enjoyed the kind of community that I was in as well and, and the people it attracted. And as I said, it, I probably wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for people like Craig or people like my friends and family who were kind of pushing me. And then once I realized there was an interest in there in East London, people wanted to kind of investigate more into what this bean-to-bar chocolate world was. Obviously, you met me at the Mass Brothers where we were doing it. That was a great experience. Again, a great kind of audience to kind of talk to and actually see what they kind of what they wanted and see how they saw chocolate. Like I think we is the whole, whole idea between about land is is kind of looking at chocolate slightly differently. It's not the same kind of product maybe you get down the corner shop. It's just looking at it slightly differently and appreciating it in a slightly different way. And that's kind of always what I've been quite intrigued by. So yeah, it was. I said that's kind of how I first initially kind of got into. It, I think. Amazing. I think East London has that kind of special vibe where you feel like anything in food and drink is possible if you yeah. just have a, a railway arch and a couple of friends who are into exactly. it. Exactly. That's the thing. Is I, I understood the chocolate side of things and that was fine. I could look after that. But then everything else that comes with the business, I have no clue. But luckily, again, I've been in East London and like whether it's you guys, like I've always, I remember whenever I bumped to you guys, I always had you would ask you for advice, whether it's to do with the actual business side of things or whether it's to do with deliveries or whether it's to do with packaging. It's all the kind of stuff which I have no idea about. And there's always somebody out there who's kind of helping or someone else who's kind of got a similar kind of, you know, business to you. And so you kind of all swap ideas. And it's that's what I think I kind of relied on a lot at the start, especially as well, even the people I was supplying chocolate to. It was all pretty much within a mile or two radius of me. Like that's kind of, whether it was the bakeries, whether it was like breweries I was working with, it was... That was kind of my marketing. It was kind of just word of mouth of all those kind of people who, again, had that interest and would pass the word on and people would just slowly but surely start knowing who you are. They just popped kind of, in my first workshop, I just always used to get kind of just random people just popping by and kind of started off as strangers. And then suddenly suddenly, I was like, I had all these new kind of people in my life who were just so intrigued by what I was doing and appreciate what I was doing. But, you know, at the same time, just wanted to help as well. So I think you don't get that everywhere, I don't think. I feel like there was just a real kind of little community, which was very nice and very helpful and very much needed as well, as, especially at the start when yeah. it's just, you really just don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested in, in how chocolate is made. I mm. think it's magical that you turn this bean into this delicious, glossy yeah. bar. So tell us, how, how yeah. do you make chocolate? That's the thing. It's, it's, there's so many different kind of, parts of the actual process but also a lot of it doesn't actually happen at the workshop like the actual story as we've always kind of just talked about now is just start at the farm and that's where essentially where actually the precursors of flavor that's where all those are kind of created so obviously it's a, a seed of a fruit tree the cacao fruit tree and that seed and the fruit itself is obviously fermented and that fermentation actually is the first part of the process which really kind of can make or break whether you've got a good cocoa bean because as they say it's creating the precursors of natural flavors you can get in in cocoa now in cocoa you can kind of 
there is a whole wide spectrum, just like wine grapes in that sense. You've got kind of about 400 or so flavor compounds naturally within cacao. So you can get a, potentially a very interesting kind of profile from different cacaos. And also, again, it's down to genetics as well and the, and the, the terroir as well, where it's grown. So again, all these parameters and kind of things are, are very crucial. So when it's ferment, fermented for five, seven days, it's then moved on to the drying process, where again, it's just kind of dried out in the sun. Or there's different kind of ways of doing it, depending on, again, which origin you're at. And then once it's dried, it's then packed up into the big sacks and then it's sent over to me. And then it's my job is to try and transform that kind of seed into, into chocolate. Now, when it gets to me, because it's come straight from a farm, it could potentially have stones, sticks, dead bugs. <laughs> dead bugs are always my favourite. <laughs> You've got surprising amount of dead bugs have travelled across the, across the waters. Oh, yeah. And like, again, this is the whole thing of like sort of these small batch making something normally that would go straight into a sorting machine and it would just shuffle out all those kind of the bits you don't want. Whereas obviously when you're starting out, it's like, okay, I'm going to hand sort everything. So everything is, all the beans are kind of hand sorted and you're just preparing for a roast. And then at the the moment, I mean, I just roast in a a convection oven. You can roast in a drum, like kind of coffee roaster as well, which I, I think that's the kind of ideal world. Once I get enough money and it's on my shopping list, I will get a, some sort of coffee roaster. But at the moment, I, I roast in a kind of 20 kilo convection oven. And that's, again, that's where flavor is starting to develop. And again, each bean has its own profile. And each bean, in a way, has its own personality. So you've got to try and bring that personality out through the different roasting profiles. So I'll do a lot of trial and error through that way. And then from the roasting, we then move on to what we call cracking and winnowing. So the bean itself has a shell on the outside. We don't really want it. We don't need it. We need what's inside, which is the cacao nib. And we have a machine that does that. And this is quite interesting process-wise. This is still the same machine I used when I first started. And it's the one that me and my dad <laughs> kind of put together. Because again, chocolate making is done on like an industrial scale mainly. You don't really get small batch chocolate. At the time you didn't anyway, like six, seven years ago, there wasn't really much going on. Now you can actually get smaller machines. But at the t- yeah, so my crack and winnow was definitely a DIY project between me and my dad, which is still running today which is still driving me crazy <laughs> still the machine beautiful feet of yeah like i i love it but i really also hate it at the same time it's just it's yeah it's a complex relationship i have with that machine but it does separate the the shell from the nib so that is it still does do that just not quick enough for my liking but it's fine it's fine anyway and once we have that we have the cocoa nib and then we can throw all that into a grinder and that's just going to start obviously just grinding up the cocoa nib now the cocoa nib is half cocoa butter, which is the natural fat. And so just due to the friction, the heat caused by the grinding, you're eventually going to get a kind of liquor, as it's called, cacao liquor, as it's called, which is just 100% cocoa. And then in this grinder, we can then add sugar. If we're making dark chocolate, if we're making milk chocolate, you add your milk powder at this point as well. And it's in there for anywhere between 48 hours to 72 hours, depending on, again, what kind of chocolate you're making. And you're just trying to work on the texture in that in, at this point. You're also developing flavour because a lot of the volatile acids are coming off as well because there is acidity to, to the cacao, which some of it's quite nice, some of it is not nice. So you kind of, again, want to get the right balance. And then from the grinder, it then goes into the conching machine. And again, conching is quite a unusual word in itself, but it's just a final flavour development kind of process. It pushes out all those volatiles and it also kind of gives it, improves the mouthfeel of chocolate. And then once we've done that, we go into the tempering phase and giving chocolate that nice shine, that nice snap that we all love about chocolate. That's what tempering is, just giving chocolate structure. And that does it through a process of melting down and cooling it back down again. 
and it turns into nice shiny bars, which we then hand wrap as well. Amazing. <laughs> Sorry, I just realised that was kind of in one long breath, that kind of process. It is quite... I, I'm still working on how to kind of minimise that kind of... that chat of explaining the process, because there just is, a, as I've just explained, so much that goes into it. Yeah. And it's all, I say, I love it, but it is quite... It does take about three to four days from kind of like from bean to bar. Quite a long process. Amazing. Tempering is so fascinating to me. It's like a yeah. beautiful <clears throat> biology chemistry. Yeah, this is the thing. And this thing. is what, again, this is what I love about chocolate making in general is that it has all the kind of, it has science. It kind of obviously has kind of hands-on kind of almost like being a kind of chef, just kind of creative aspect to it. But the science of it, you can really go hard on the science if you want to. <laughs> yeah. Like I know some chocolate makers, in fact, a lot of chocolate makers that I know have come from kind of scientific backgrounds because that's what they've kind of been obsessed with. Whether it's to do with the fermentation, because again, I learned what I needed to learn because <laughs> I am not a science guy. So I kind of learned the basics I need to learn to understand the process of fermentation. There are people out there who are just doing, spending their lives just all about fermentation of cacao and they've got PhDs in it and <laughs> it's just incredible people. And then it comes to the process and like tempering. Again, you can go, like I've got books on, on tempering <laughs> which go really deep on it and the science. But again, I, I, my brain, unfortunately, just can't kind of contain that much science. So I just learn the bits I need to learn. And then uh, with tempering in it anyway, also you get some machines now which kind of take all the thinking out of it for you. You just have to press some buttons and it kind of just comes out perfect. But it's also the, still the most kind of the, the, the bit which goes wrong the most is the tempering, I think. Because it is such a kind of yeah. delicate kind of process as well in terms of do with the science anyway, him getting it right. Yeah, and if it you, does go wrong, can you do you get another shot? Great thing about chocolate, chocolate yeah, yeah, you just melt it down again, it. start again, it's fine. You rarely get a lot of waste in chocolate, which is great because if you mess up the tempering, yeah, you just throw it all back in. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's the most frustrating and, and demoralising yeah. part of it when you do 300 bars. and you, Because you put them in the fridge to cool down, it's not until really they've actually properly cooled down that you really know you've got the temper right. Yeah. Because sometimes if the temper's not quite right, you'll get a little tiny streak on the back of your bar and you won't see that until it's already set. So then you just do, you just chuck 300 bars back in and you're like, okay, just wasted like, yeah, just wasted like three hours of my life. That's fine. Don't worry about it. I think, I was going to say, I think I'd get a lot of wastage if I worked in a chocolate factory, but I'd just be eating it. So. Yeah, it's, I'm still terrible. Like I said, I, before I got into chocolate, I was, I had a, I had a, I've got a sugar addiction, that's pure and simple. I just could eat more chocolate than anyone else. Again, ask Craig, Craig will tell you, like living with Craig, like, <laughs> should I say this? Yeah, I could. He used to write a blog called Sweet Boy, I think it was. I think it was called, and it was based around me. And <laughs> You're he, Sweet Boy. I was Sweet Boy. I think it was Sweet Boy. I, was, I probably got that wrong. But he used to basically go to the corner shop, and I'm going to be honest, we, we're sometimes quite stoned. And he'd go to the corner shop and he would get some kind of quirky chocolate, which we hadn't seen before. And we'd just come back and basically I would eat it and review it and then he would write, write a blog about it and he had, I mean Craig is a very good writer and he made me sound a lot more funnier and more interesting than I actually am and it was a really good little blog series but that was when this was before I was even in chocolate this is when I was eating the kind of corner shop stuff yeah. which you know I could eat a ton of and still could to today to be honest so yeah when it comes to my waste of chocolate I need to be careful I'm still I'm like eating half of my my product all the time you have to taste test it that's, yeah, I think that, that excuse is what I always use, but I feel like it's just getting old now. I'm just like, come on, Phil, you're not just, this is not quality kind of check. This is just you being greedy. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, 
And I can't look at this. There's no one there to tell me off either because it's like, you know, it's your own product. <laughs> so it's like, I need, but what, ideally, I need like my mum and dad there in the factory just always like looking and watching and what kind of, as soon as I reach out for something, for them to just like, no, tell me off. <laughs> kind of, yeah, it's bad. I think that was the thing that I noticed about your product though is that actually the, it, is a, it is more satisfying because of the intensity of the taste. I think it's one of the first things you told me because I, when I met you, everything smelled of chocolate, like for sure. And having you describe that process of how it's ground and how it's conched, throwing those aromatic and volatile compounds up, everything smells of cacao. And there is a difference, I suppose, in, in the smell of the raw cacao and the finished chocolate. And that is probably that aroma that gets thrown up. But then I, I, in, in the finished chocolate, it, it, has, it has more cacao in it than the shop-bought stuff? Yeah, often? so that's kind of, a, again, normally, I mean, I think it's, because I'm never one to kind of like shout down at corner shop chocolate, because again, I used to feed off it for pretty much all my my childhood i mean i but, drink corner shop fizzy pop like, yeah daily. exactly so, yeah I mean, it's like know, i love the stuff it's like taste white like but what you're doing when you're kind of buying the corner shop chocolate there is in terms of ingredients anyway with 90 percent of the chat of the time there's gonna be more sugar in there than there is anything else whereas with this the whole point is that we're trying to showcase the cocoa the cacao cocoa whichever one you want to call it more than anything else because that's what i'm finding that's what i think is quite the most interesting part of it and that's to say that's to say, before, like with the corner shop stuff, what they look for when they make their chocolate is just that one-tone chocolate flavor, which you get from, from cocoa. Mm. Well, and what we, what kind of the bean to bar will do is go, well, hang on, there's a spectrum of flavor here and we like to kind of bring them out. They're quite obviously nuanced flavors. Again, comparison to kind of like wine and in that respect, like they're quite subtle kind of flavors, but at the same time, it just showcases chocolate in a, in a kind of different light than to what you would normally kind of get. It's just, you know, I'd say it's different people creating kind of different products, but using kind of the same ingredients. But I say they use probably a lot more sugar than, than I say I do. I don't get me wrong, there's still sugar in my bars and yeah. I would never prescribe it as a healthy food. But it's, <laughs> it's yeah, it's just showcasing cocoa in it and it's hopefully in its, in its best form. So for you then, is, is the really important thing, the sourcing? Yeah. So that's kind of, again, where I think maybe my initial trip when I went out to Central America, that's where, again, you kind of, your eyes are open to what the industry really is. And this is where you start to see the kind of negative side of, of industry and how ingrained it has been for so many years now, how, how bad it is. And so, again, doing land, it just was kind of up there, you know, you're creating the best quality in terms of taste, but at the same time, you have to make sure you're doing everything the correct way and, with chocolate, the sourcing side was making sure we we're cutting out as many middlemen as possible because that's just, again, the norm within the industry is to have about 10, 11 different middlemen involved in sourcing cocoa. It can get crazy. And then just a, a very simple kind of th- idea of just paying farmers more money, which, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy that even like fair trade kind of standard, we're, we're looking to pay three or four times that because that's kind of this, the, the starting point of where we, they, they, that's what they need to kind of survive. And also, we're also saying, actually, you know what? This is how good your cocoa actually is. Like, yeah. this, is, you just, this, is what, this is how much I, I kind of think you should get for, the, for such a quality product that you produce. And the time and effort that, it's one of the most labor-intensive crops you can grow. Like, it's, it's madness. Like, and the fact that they're even growing it, if, if, if I'm always quite in awe of them because it's just quite labor intensive and it's so volatile as well. Like as soon as they get some sort of kind of disease or something, which it just, it can wipe out cacao so easily because it's quite a fragile crop. It's takes a long time as well. So yeah, it's just, 
again, talk about showcasing chocolate in a different way. It's in terms of flavor, but it's also showcasing and saying behind the scenes, this is also what we need to work on a lot more than we are at the moment because, you know, it's, it's not great. And uh, it's only, you know, if we carry on just talking about it now like this and saying, look, the starting point is just paying farmers more money. So yeah, it's always been kind of at the heart of what we're trying to do and work on them and improve, I think. So you're finding farms in that way. How do you how do you source for flavour? Yeah, that's interesting. So obviously when I first started, it was I actually went out there. So I, I went back out to Central America to kind of just do my first sourcing trip, which was quite fun. And again, I wanted to learn a bit more about what happens at Origin. So that's when I kind of made connections, mainly in Central America. So my first kind of range, I was doing Nicaragua, Honduras and Guatemala. And that was kind of where I kind of... In, kind of that was my first kind of range and then since then obviously and as the industry has kind of grown as well like it's quite nice so I just get kind of sent quite a lot of samples from from different origins and there's different stories from each one really and then sometimes like I said there was I always say this with the, with the Filipino bar that I did that was a, a niece a niece, it was a family farm in the Philippines and it was the niece who did some work over here and she just arrived at my workshop one day. Again, I told you, sometimes people just turn up. She just turned up with a bag of her cocoa, of her family's cocoa and she was like, do you mind having making a sample out of it? I was like, yeah, sure. And they'd never actually exported at that point. They'd done, they had lots of crops, but they never exported their cocoa. So I made the chocolate. Turns out they had really good cocoa and we spent quite a long time trying to work out how to get it over here, but then we, we did that. So yeah, that's kind of, how that happened but yeah so we now it's kind of nice because you know the industry is growing quite quite a lot now so it's quite easy to kind of link up with different origins and farmers and again trying to keep that kind of direct contact because again that just makes life easier for both sides whether for the chocolate maker and the the farmer you know you that relationship is is also kind of as as crucial as anything really because you're kind of trying to build that trust as well which is much more easy to do now in 2023 in terms of communication and how you can actually contact them as well. That's another thing as well. It's just, we can do it now. Like we have the technology and everything to kind of create these relationships with people in faraway places. And it's, it's just something we need to do more of, but yeah, in terms of sourcing, it's, there's always a different story behind every origin really, but yeah, it's, uh, I have about a, two cupboards worth of samples I think in my Amazing. in my workshop of like different origins I still need to get through and work on and always looking for the next interesting kind of origin and again there's new origins popping up as well which is always interesting which couldn't they couldn't grow cocoa before but now they can because of sometimes because of climate issues and sometimes just because there was never an incentive to until now and and now places like India for example are now kind of creating lots of good cocoa and apparently China have jumped on the they've realised they can grow cocoa so they're like okay there we go so yeah it's it's a fun time for chocolate. It's an interesting time. Lots yeah. of experimenting. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of, yeah, yeah. It's always fun. Love it. You also have made some flavours with unusual ingredients that maybe are from the UK as well. I, was, I remember trying a chocolate that you made with malt or even leftover malt from a brewing yeah, process. Yeah, yeah, That was with pressure, pressure drop, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Could you talk a bit more about that? It'd be really yeah. interesting to know about how that works. This is... I feel like this is going to be the Craig Ballinger podcast, but he... <laughs> Craig, you must join us at yeah. some point. But he was, yeah, I mean, he was friends with all the breweries and I just kind of got, got I went down to Pressure Drop, I think, with Craig because he was helping them doing something. And yeah, we just started talking malt 
and then he, they took me through all the different you know, malt barleys they had and stuff and before I knew it I was making a malt bar for the pressure dock guys just to kind of play around with but then it became such a kind of popular bar that it's still a bar you can get today it's still, it was one of the one that kind of one of the original bars that I did and uh, ever since that actually relationships generally with breweries have been quite fun because again people have made beers obviously out of my waste cacao uh, into the, the actual husk you know, we're talking about cracking winnowing that's yeah. The husk itself is is still got a lot of flavour in there, so I've given that to countless kind of breweries in the past, and that's always been quite fun. Again, same with giving to a gin distillery as well, and people making furniture out of the cacao husks now. It's yeah, so it's kind of, again these relationships you kind of just start creating kind of quite naturally. But yeah, the malt one was um, all down to Craig, all down to Craig, and also I mean, but then again another local person, John the Poacher, who again. <laughs> In fact, he turned up just the other day and just kind of popped by and <laughs> was talking about what he could potentially get me. But he, yeah, well, he he got me fennel seed and malt. That's what wow. the bar we did. Yeah, that was a fun one. We did a, a cacao and rhubarb and sea salt yes. soda with your cacao yeah. many yeah m- many years ago. Which I was like great. yeah, the husks are great. I, in, Again, the husks have been just good for me to, again, just creating kind of these relationships with other companies who maybe, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't normally, normally I just hang out with other chocolate makers, but, you know, I've got a product, like a byproduct where, you know, I can give it to breweries, I can give it to you guys, I can give it to, like I said, to all sorts of different people. And just seeing what they create is always, again, one of the kind of big plus points. That's one of the things I really do enjoy about kind of doing land anyway, I think. Fun. I, I have to confess something. And that is, I, I hate white chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I hate chocolate. No, 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 no. Which is also no, fine, love, by the way. I love chocolate, but I hate white chocolate. I sort of, I never really got the point of it. But yeah. I think I'm basing that off of like Milky Bar chocolate, which is yeah. almost nothing. But you make a really interesting toasted white chocolate bar yeah. that I actually really, really love. Yeah. So what's the process behind that? Yeah, so that was quite a simple one, like... Again, I was a bit like you in that in that respect. Like, I mean, I, I liked white chocolate, but it just never really interested me. It's not really anything interesting going on with the ingredients of white chocolate. It's, it's sugar, it's milk powder, and it's cocoa butter. There's not much flavour going on there. And so with this, again, this was like, I'm also, whenever it comes to process or making chocolate or whatever next bar I'm doing, if it's, it's just a, quite a simple, efficient way of, of, of creating like a bar, I'm always up for that. I don't really like kind of long fiddly bars which take time to kind of whether you're kind of sprinkling stuff on or whatever you're mixing stuff in if it if it kind of gets too long and laborious I, I just kind of lose interest so like I like kind of simple but quite effective ways of, of making bars and this one was just simply toasting the milk powder not anything crazy nothing anything you know I mean it's something which I I knew there was like there's quite there's like a couple of us doing it now and it it just makes white chocolate so much more interesting because it just gives it more of a depth of flavour, with more butterscotchy kind of yeah. flavour to it. And it's literally just just toasting the milk powder. And then I was like, okay, well, now I've done that and it's got a nice, much more kind of depth of flavour to it. It's still quite sweet. And it's, even for me, I was a bit like, that's what you get with white. It's overly sweet sometimes. So then just sprinkling the cocoa nibs in there. It's great for texture as well, like a bit of crunch, but also the cocoa nibs just break up the sweetness as well because they're, you know, they're quite intense flavour to them but it's it just takes away the sweetness so putting it all together it just created this bar which again it felt 
a bit like a home run at the time. As soon as I did it, as soon as I started going out, I was like, okay, yeah, everyone's just loving this. This is fine. I don't have to worry about white chocolate anymore. It like, is over. <laughs> yes, like, I, I should probably create more white, different versions of the white bar, but you know, it's sometimes it's just like it's still going. It's still going strong. And yeah, so yeah, it kind of it's the one bar I probably snack on the most actually. As well. Talk, <laughs> talk, talking of snacking, it's the one I'm. It's dangerous that one. It's, it's, a, it's a great bar. Yeah, I think I think it's cool. It is really easy to eat, and I think I think the coca nibs in it are smart, like really smart. It's about balance, I and mean, it is a food. So maybe you're a chocolate chef. I don't know. Maybe it's a chefy, <laughs> a chefy vibe. You know? Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's like, especially I suppose with the again, it's it all to do with quality ingredients as well. Like the cocoa nibs themselves, like they're really interesting coconuts. Like they're from Nicaragua, and they've got this kind of kind of unusual kind of flavor, quite intense flavor to them. So again, it kind of brings it comes through and it kind of just you know it just creates that something a little bit different which you won't be used to i suppose with with white chocolate and cocoa nibs in, in that sense as well because actually a lot of time when you do get cocoa nibs they are overly roasted and they've just got this kind of one-tone flavor and they're not that interesting but you can get some quite odd tasting cocoa nibs like you know which this again this is, it was quite fun experimenting with that seeing which nibs work with the toasted white chocolate and it's, just, it's a simple thing but it works and it was it was nice nice have you have you ever had a chocolate bar disaster like a <laughs> like a origin or a bean that didn't work? Yeah, like there are some like I said in terms of when you talk about spectrum of flavor and some of the flavors they create are a bit you get ones that are kind of quite mushroomy <laughs> kind of tastes like soil a bit. But some people re- <laughs> like they're seen as like some of the best cocoa around but it's for me I'm just like this is just madness. And sometimes you kind of get like, I mean, there's another origin, Papua New Guinea are famous for when they're talking about drying the cocoa and talking about process, they, because it's so wet there, they have to dry it under a fire essentially. So the smoke actually seeps into the beans. So you can kind okay. of, and this is again, some people love it. Like you, you, you have a Papua New Guinea bar, you can pretty much not always guarantee it, but most of the time it's going to have smoky notes to it. And sometimes it really can be quite smoky to the point it's quite hammy. It's like, so it's really unusual. You're like, ham and chocolate. Ham and chocolate is this, I think. But yeah, because I, again, the Mass Brothers, I remember we used to be from Papua New Guinea. Sometimes, again, it's all down to the harvest as well. So some harvests will just be a bit more in, intense than others. And again, that's all down to maybe the techniques that I used at, at Origin. But um, yeah, it's been quite a few disasters, I thought, with, with chocolate. And also, like, it is to do with just this is again the comparison to, to wine. Every harvest is quite different. That's the hardest bit is consistency, but then it's also the bit you celebrate because it's like, actually, I quite like it when it's a bit, like one harvest is slightly different to the other and it's celebrated in wine. But with chocolate, you know, it's, it's again, it's not even the thing you really talk about with chocolate, but it's it's a quite amazing. Cause that's, that's probably the most annoying thing about what I do is the bars I have have tasting notes in the back. It's really annoying when you've done off the, you know, how it works with you, you print off in bulk like a, and then your 10, harvest comes 10, through yeah and then your next harvest comes through and it's like well that's not the same tasting notes as the ones out of the packaging is it so it's like but again I mean I kind of celebrate that also because it's, kind of, it's a fun thing like my that the orange bar the Nicoliso bar has changed so much over the years and that's purely just down to the bean but also actually I've upgraded my machines along the way and that's really kind of changed things like changing my roaster was quite interesting that really I had to change all my roasting profiles just because I went, I was going bigger and it was a new machine. And so that, that took a while to get right. And then the grinding machines, you have stone melanges, which are quite traditional stone granite melanges, or you have things called universal grinders, which again, is just another grinder, but does it slightly differently. 
but it means that again your profile is quite different and so you have to grind for different times and at different temperatures and that kind of took a while to get used to as well so that's kind of changed all my profiles when I got new machines as well so it's all these different things again kind of affecting things but now like I said my Nicolita bar now tastes so different to when it first was going like six years ago it's so so when people are when people are making a, a brand of chocolate mm. and they are they aiming for a specific profile so they'll always be blending different origins in to yeah. try and get to that same signature taste yeah i think a lot that's a lot of in, in industrial chocolate that's kind of a lot what's going on a lot of, lot of blending is is going along a lot of kind of heavy heavy roasting is going on because sometimes as well i i i know with a, a lot of the mass industrial stuff as well like a lot of the beans that they get a lot of them aren't even fermented either, which is quite bad. So they have to, they want to blend, they're blending all together because they just want to get that, that, that one profile, which is just unique and, and consistent all the way through. So yeah, you'll find that, that that's, that's kind of what they're doing. And same with kind of the texture as well. Like, I mean, we've got Swiss or kind of Belgian chocolate. So, so smooth. And that's, that, that's their conching profile that they, they will conch um, for a long time. And Sometimes with conching as well, as well as improving the mouthfeel, it also is affecting flavour. So you can drive off flavour conching and bring through the nicer flavours. But then also you can carry on conching and just drive off all the flavours. And then again, you're left with the, that one-tone chocolate bit that actually we do all love. And that's what, we've, I say, that's what the industrial chocolate kind of want. So they will kind of purposely conch and just kind of... They don't want any of the kind of maybe slightly nuanced flavour. They just want the kind of the one-tone flavour. So again, it's the same kind of machinery that I use, but they just use it differently. It's... So you have, you don't have anywhere to hide with the origin. You're, you're almost, you're, you're reliant on buying a bean which has a pleasant profile and then processing it in a way which is sensitive to, to, to elevate it. Yeah. And maybe steering that process towards something that is palatable, enjoyable. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Is it's... there a fine line maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I always talk about obviously like when the bean arrives, it's like it's, packed with potential and then it's like the job of a chocolate maker to unlock that potential through the process and like you said the the different whether it's the roasting whether it's the conching whether it's the grinding each one of those if you tweak it or slightly change it can really change the final profile of your bar it's it's quite amazing how they can do that there's a chocolate maker in Cleethorpes called Duffy's and he was one of the first chocolate makers I looked up to and makes some of the best chocolate around, like ever and he, I don't know if he still does actually, but he used the Nicolisa bean, like I did, and created a similar percentage by, I think it was like, mine's 73, his was like 70, 71, I can't remember. So in terms of the actual recipe, it's this kind of the same. But just due to the way we, as chocolate makers, processed our chocolate, the actual final bar tasted, the two bars were so different. It was quite, and that again just showcased, oh, okay. So the chocolate maker can actually also put their, kind of stamp on the bar as well in terms of how they how they make the chocolate but the kind of and the profile in itself can just be changed by so many of these different things and that was quite I remember that was in the when I first started I realised I was like ow okay this is the potential of chocolate and how interesting it can be it's just it's always kind of surprising me really and uh, still does I mean it drives me crazy as well but it also <laughs> <laughs> I know that for you. but yeah it's it's amazing what a tweak of a process can do to your final bar in a good way and bad way. So with your machinery, you talked about having built some of it as well. And I've been around and seen some of these bits of kit that you've got. 
if with that being so critical to to the end product your your machinery and your process how do you how do you choose a piece of kit or how do you how how do you get it the right size for what you're trying to do as yeah. well like as you as you grow or as you develop i mean do you have anything on the wish list it'd be interesting to know about yeah for that, for it's funny i always kind of uh i mean yeah I've, my, my wish list is ever growing um, Same. yeah <laughs> and and i've never i've done i think i've done chocolate making wrong like I, I i think if i could start again i would just yeah i'd kind of buy every machine that which kind of fits like you say okay i just want to, the end goal is to make let's say 200 kilos of chocolate and every machine should be able to take that in one go if you know what i mean like just go in one kind of process along the way and you've got 200 kilos of chocolate unfortunately I've got such a mis- mishmash of machines, which all have different capacities. And so actually it's just never quite, you know, I, I, it's never a smooth transition. And this is just because like, I, I still use some of the machines I bought when I was living at, making chocolate at home. So I've got like home size kind of chocolate making machines, but then I've also now obviously advanced where I've kind of got much bigger machines where I can make a lot more, but it's, it's just, it's, yeah, like I said, it's kind of like a a real DIY style still. It, fe- it feels still quite DIY anyway, the way I do it, I think. And then in terms of which machines and what machines, again, that's just being a nerd. And just over the years, you're you're always in kind of reading the forums and seeing what new machines are coming out and all that kind of stuff. And you see other chocolate makers and you're seeing what they're And you're always talking with each other and kind of getting advice off each other. But it's annoying as well with chocolate making... I say annoying. I keep making it sound like chocolate's really like a shit thing to do. It's really fun, I promise. But one annoying thing is that <laughs> there's a lot of machines that go into chocolate making, as with soda as well. But I'm always really jealous of coffee guys because <laughs> they you go in and like all these roasters have like these beautiful roasting machines, and it's like oh, this is like seventy grand, and it's like oh, sorry. They're like seventy grand just for this roaster. I'm like, wow, that's good. because that's all they need. That, that's yeah. their that's their main. You know, they need to get that right. Like they want to get the best version of that, and then they just have to pack it up and put it in a bag. And it's like, <laughs> oh. it's like that's like one of the many things that I have to do is like do the roasting. So I have to kind of when you think of budgets and stuff, you have to split your budget across many machines rather than just on one machine. So I think that's where I've always wished I had a secret money tree somewhere where I can just <laughs> buy all the machines that I want. Like I, I have, like I have like dreams where I like I walk into my workshop and it's like a different setup. It's got all the machines that are on my wish list and they're just all there set up beautifully in this nice pristine workshop. And I, <laughs> I press a button and it just all just pretty much just makes chocolate for me. But yeah, that wish list is, is ever growing. It's still there. Like the Kraken winnower, as we were talking about before, <laughs> I feel like the day that I can get rid of that Kraken winnower, it, it will be a tough day. But I would be really happy about it. <laughs> but to say it so, like in terms of numbers, we're talking like that cracking window between machines that I kind of put together and what me and my dad put together. It's like maybe two or three thousand pounds, I think. And then the cracking window next up, which I'm going to get or hoping to get at some point in the future, is like 25 grand, 30 grand. So it's mm. like yeah. that's kind of the difference. But that's also the, the fun bit. It's like, if you do have a small budget, you can still make chocolate and you can still do it on a, on a you know, relatively small scale and it's, and lots of people do it and it's great. But yeah, the jumps you have to make in terms of production, I'm sure you guys have the same. Like I remember yeah. you guys, yeah, when you were in your Hackney place and you moved up, that's, we're talking, it's like, it's a big, it's a scary number of, in terms of... It's a scary amount of investments. Yeah. yeah. 
shiny things yeah. that break and have really expensive parts. And <laughs> yes. And like a guy with a big wrench needs to turn up and like hit it with a hammer. I, mean, we've, I think we share one of those. So you know John. Oh yeah, John. He's incredible. That's our engineer. He's, he's our engineer. He's a hero. <laughs> he's an absolute hero. He's amazing. He's one of the... He helped hand restore the second filling machine that we, yeah. we, we bought. We had this ludicrous... So we were struggling with the same sorts of issues. Mm. Before we stepped up to the, the new equipment we've got now we had a kind of intermediary phase where we bought this 1960s rotary filler that looked like a rocket ship which was incredible (laughs) but it was from the 1960s and had like 1960s engineering and so we needed a guy from the 1960s (laughs) to basically turn up to be able to actually service it because it you know do you know uh, this is the thing about john so i say john is i think yeah you introduced me to john again this is another kind of thing of like being just messaging going i've got a machine it's broken i don't know what to do i'm panicking who's going to fix this quite obscure chocolate machine, which, you know, there's no real kind of expert out there that I know who can come around and fix this. And then John comes over and yeah, he just kind of, like you said, he just seems to hit things with like certain, like he just hits certain parts of the machine and just looks at it. And kind of after about just five minutes of just looking at it, he's like, yeah, okay, I've got it. I was like, this is a tempering machine, which actually, when you look at the insides of it, it's, well, I, I mean, I say it's complex. It, for me, it looks quite complex and quite unusual. But yeah, he just knew exactly what was going on. Fixed this right away. But also, I, he is a, like... I, I, do we know how old John is? No, but he does keep threatening to retire. And every if, time I, he does so that, scared. I have a little panic. Yeah. yeah, he is officially retiring, actually. But he's now said he's not taking on any, any new customers. I think yeah. he, he wants to carry on <laughs> fixing machines. And he still likes us somehow, which is great. We make him a lot of tea. We love John. If John, yeah. if you're listening, you know, you're great. We love you. You know John's not listening, by the way. No, you know, John, no, no, it's fine. I'm going to send him this recording. After <laughs> Please do, though. We, we chatted. No, no, he's... But, you he's, know, he, I, he's just one of these guys you just um, tell... Yeah. He's, no, it's, it's incredible. And I, I, maybe that's the other part as well. I think by doing the process, like you said, you meet people that turn up at the door. Yeah. You meet people who are there supporting you. You meet people when things go wrong as well. Yeah. Like, And you kind of, you find that connection in the people that are around you. Yeah. yeah. And it wouldn't be possible without the community. And I guess that is the advantage... Because that's the other thing. It's like, we're in a city. What is the advantage of actually making the product in the city? Is it mm. is the, the fact that you've just got people like John around, like doing things? Like, he, you know, it, yeah. It, it's, it's, it is good to have a network of people to reach out to. Yeah. In fact, I had another, there was another time where, so Brad from Dark Arts, I remember I'd moved into my second workshop and it was like a commercial unit on the floor and there were people living above me and they, re- they really weren't enjoying the smell of chocolate. Like... <laughs> And I think one of the, one of the, it was a young, it was a couple and she was pregnant. And so she was obviously, she really was fit. And I felt terrible. I was like, I hate the idea that you're like not enjoying where you live because of my chocolate smells. And so I was like, how do I sort this out? Like, I mean, obviously I can't stop the smell of chocolate. So then I went, I was just talking to Brad about it because I was kind of in slight panic mode. And again, he just obviously being from a coffee background and roasting how he, like there's, there's the kind of like machines which can nullify the smells and the fumes that you create. And he just put me onto this guy and put me onto this kind of certain kind of machine that I could use. And that again, just like at that moment, I was in pure panic mode. And I couldn't think even like how, myself how to fix things. I just, and just talking to Brad and just, I, just, I think I just went to get a coffee and I was talking to him about it. <laughs> and he was like, don't worry, just do this, this, this. And then you've got this option. I was like, oh, okay. And it was, you know, it all sorted itself out and it was fine. And, Again, that was just relying quite heavily on another just local person who was doing a, another business of themselves and just sharing ideas and helping each other out. So it's 
yeah, it's, I couldn't imagine doing this anywhere else, really. I don't know, it's something, this is why I'm always quite torn about it. Yeah, I always kind of want to try and stay as close as I can to where it all started, because, you know, you kind of feel very much at home in that sense. But um, you know, also it's quite an expensive place to manufacture anything. I mean, that's also my own fault for doing that. But, uh, but no, yeah, it's been, without the community, I think it's, it's pretty impossible, I think. Yeah. Well, we should promote some soda now. <laughs> promote, Enough about chocolate. Do we promote the chocolate first? No. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. Phil, if you could make any flavour of soda, what soda flavour would you make? Oh, wow. I'm just going to throw out things that I like this isn't so these <laughs> might not be combinations but I to this day I have consumed probably more pineapple than any other person <laughs> on, on this planet <laughs> so I don't know if there's something with pineapple as the main flavor okay. I don't know what you would think would go well with pineapple I, I'll leave that to you guys are the experts but just loads of loads of pineapple loads and loads of pineapple have you done pineapple we haven't made a pineapple soda no, no. maybe this is the call to action yeah Start with some pineapple soda. <laughs> to fair, I do like rhubarb as well, but you, I mean, you guys know. I mean, that's, the rhubarb. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. And then, I mean, I should say cocoa as well. I should, you should have some sort of chocolate. Do you want pineapple and cocoa soda? Yeah, pineapple and cacao. There we go. Is that Let's a see thing? See how that works. Yeah, you're going to have to sort out the origin. You're going to find it for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll probably... Oh, wait, can we get it from the same plate? This pineapple? Yeah, cocoa? maybe. Yeah, sure. There you go. Leave that with me. All right, cool. Leave <laughs> that We're going to get some pineapple cacao soda right Six on the Six months later, a cut. There's a pineapple and cacao soda. <laughs> or it's just me still trying to wandering the, kind of, the depths of the jungle trying to find pineapple and cocoa in the same place. Like, yeah, no. The same tree yeah. next to each other. God, that'd be amazing. Anyway, that is a dream. There you go. You heard it here. <laughs> yeah. Well, Phil, it's been amazing having you on the podcast. Thanks Thank you. for joining us. Tell everybody where they can get land. Where can they find you after yeah. this? Well, it's, yeah, easiest just to go into landchocolate.com and then on there you'll see everything you need in terms of videos and chocolate bars and silly graphics and stuff. <laughs> All the things you do on websites. And you can buy it there, obviously, as well. Good. Great. And how can people find you on socials? Oh, yeah. Land underscore choc is Instagram and Twitter. Nice. Someone's still on Twitter. <laughs> and the one guy's still going. And then I'm not on TikTok. Should I be on TikTok? I should be on TikTok. 100%. I? Yeah. We do TikTok. Do you? Yeah. Is it good? It's interesting. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> you can do anything. That's it. You just thing is, well, be talking, an idiot. But the thing is, like, talking about process, I mean... Will it cacao? Yes, it will. Or will it grind? Yeah. What, ca- what can't no, you don't, conch? No, don't bring the conch. Huh? Okay. <laughs> We've always got John on call. It's fine. But yeah, it's a lot of fun processing videos I probably, I probably should be doing on TikTok. Yeah. But one step at a time. I'm still... Oh, just make chocolate. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Millennial's Guide to How to Use TikTok. <laughs> is that it? Just do TikTok. Put up processing videos. They'll love it. Yeah. Is that simple as that? Is that, is that how it works, Kyle? Is that how we do it? Oh, good. Yeah. All right, fine. Amazing. Well, this has been the Never From Concentrate podcast. We've had Phil from Land Chocolate on today, and we've got many more guests to come. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and thanks for coming. Thank you.
I love that we've done this whole podcast and you've had chocolate on your hand the entire time. Have I actually? <laughs> I think it's here. Oh, yeah, no, I generally do as well. I hope that's chocolate. Can we just get a zoom in on that? Yeah, zoom right in. He's actually... This is a problem in my life. come from the chocolate Any social shop. event I go to, I always have to do a chocolate check. And <laughs> I clearly didn't do my chocolate check before I left. That's it. I'm so sorry. We'll edit that it's out. Right. It's fine. If Again, it's authentic, isn't it? Yeah, it's <laughs> real. He really smells of chocolate. You really can't get it through, through the sound or the screen. But oh yeah, man, guy. I think we should probably eat one. Yeah. All this talk. Let's eat some chocolate. Yeah. Are you a duck? Have you, you probably haven't tried the Tanzania one because that the green one. Yeah, let's try you, the Tanzania. The other two are originals. Got a bit. No. It's not. It's dark. There is some dark milk. No, I assume you don't want milk. He doesn't, uh, don't want milk. There is yes, no milk in this. This is a. This is this is a vegan. It's eighty-five percent, so it's it's a beast. It's a no, but it's eighty-five percent. But I don't think it tastes like an eighty-five percent. This is why I used I use this particular bean because it's actually quite a naturally fruity, acidic bean, and so that adds natural sweetness. Would you like some? I mean, <laughs> it would be rude not. To. Yeah. It's quite creamy as well. Mm. But I have to think, because sometimes when you have 85%, it's, for me, it's too intense. Like, I'm quite a sweet guy naturally. But 85% with well, this one was particularly, just seemed to work really nicely. Mm. Wow. Mm. It's got a slightly salty finish, hasn't it? Mm. Mm. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah. Do you think you that's think, a, with this as well? It's quite nice. <laughs> the tasting notes change. Do you think people just read the back of that orange tasting notes and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't. You think it doesn't taste anything like that? Anymore. That's the thing. It's like, I think I. <laughs> I think some people concentrate way too much on the notes, as if like they, if they don't taste that, they feel like they've failed. Yeah. It's like no, no. That's just to encourage the conversation. Like you may, you might, you probably will taste something completely different. But actually, it's it's just to start the conversation of like you know, this is what we have tasted in the past, and you may get notes of it. But some people get completely different notes to to what. Yeah. And but I think it's because again you don't associate any of this with chocolate, so people are a bit apprehensive. It's like when you go to a wine tasting. Yeah. I suddenly become really kind of like, oh god, I don't know what I'm like. I can't taste <laughs> anything. What's good? And they telling you what you should be tasting. I'm like, I don't know. So with this again, it's like with chocolate. You, I don't. I never want to take it too seriously when it comes to the tasting bit. I think you know, just enjoy it. But at the same time, be like, you know, is it, is it something slightly different to what you're normally used to? And trying to explore that and have fun with it, really. Yeah. I very unlovingly wrapped it. What well, it was a very lovingly <laughs> hand-wrapped bar as well. I feel like I just ripped it. No, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm over that. I've, it's I've, meant to be. <laughs> Yeah, I've wrapped well, imagine it. Imagine we've gone to a very nice corner shop and we've just like gone straight <laughs> for it and ripped it apart. Wicked. Cool. I want you to keep eating this now. Okay. Is it, is it break, break, pass? Is it, I don't know with <laughs> That's nothing with my, but I saw, because I never put, you know how obviously like normally chocolate's kind of got its little squares. Yeah. I've never done that. So then you don't really notice how much you're eating, I think, yeah, because if you've got kind of a square there, you're like, okay, I know that's a square. I'm assuming these are for us. I didn't actually. Yeah, like, yeah of course. Yeah, no, it's.